Welcome to Wealthion. I'm Wealthion founder, welcoming you here at the end of the week, where I'm joined by my excellent friend, Lance Roberts, Portfolio Manager from Real Investment Advice. So we're going to talk about everything the market's done in the past week, uh, as well as some pretty big macro developments. Lance, how you doing today, brother? I'm good. It's been an interesting first kind of, you know, technically we have to call this the first week of September. It was a holiday shortened week because Labor Day was Monday. So for the first full week of September, you know, it's it's now over for the most part and, and we can kind of start looking forward to what's coming. <laughs> okay. Um, well, all right, look, so um, markets pretty range bound right now, right? They're still trying to find their footing here. Um, I know that uh, from you know, the past couple of months, you had you had first predicted that things had gotten pretty overbought. You said, look, there's highly likely to be a pullback. You said put it at like the three to 10% range. Uh, we, we've seen that, you know, not not a little more than three, not quite 10. Um, and uh, markets have then sort of tried to recover, but they're, they're, they're just having trouble finding their mojo. They're having trouble deciding at this point which direction they want to go in. What are things looking like to you? Where, what do you think is more likely from here? Do we, we break out and start climbing again or is gravity kicking in? No, uh, it's just simply the market's doing exactly what you kind of expected to do. Uh, as we talked about in July, to your point, we said, you know, three to five to a 10 percent correction, completely normal in any given year. We had a five percent correction ish. Um, since then, you know, markets have tried to rally here uh, just a tad. And, and, and again, you know, as September, you know, we're in August and September week months of the year uh typically sloppy kind of trading action in september europe's pretty much mostly closed down for the most part so you have a lack of liquidity a lack of volume so markets tend to kind of drift sideways um if you go back historically you'll see a lot of of analysis that says you know september is one of the worst months of the year um which is true because for some reason whenever you have a big crash in the markets uh whether it's uh, you know uh, you know uh Black Friday or, you know, whatever it is, it always happens in the month of September for some reason. So, you know, Lehman crashed in September. So, you know, if, if you strip those out, kind of those anomalous situations that occur from time to time and why they all kind of cluster in September, I don't know. Um, but if you strip those out, the month of September is still weak, but it's not exceptionally weak. But markets tend to kind of just drift for the month. Uh, that typically sets you up very well for about October, November, December period, which are the, the start of the seasonally strong six months of the year. And the reason that is, is because portfolio managers then have to start putting really kind of putting money back to work. They need to catch up with portfolio performance. They need to be fully allocated as they head into the end of the year for reporting purposes. Um, and, and of course, this is also when you get in your holiday shopping season. So things tend to improve in terms of, of economic activity typically. Um, and we're also going into a pre-election year. So all of that's going to kind of lay in here that likely this market's going to kind of consolidate here for a month or so. And then we'll probably have a move back towards the July highs uh, as we head into year end. All right. Um, so I recorded an interview just a couple of days ago with Sven Henrik that just ran on the channel. And um, Sven, like you, Lance, you know, said, look, you know, I, I think the macro data is you know, really pretty dismal in many ways. But he said, you know, if you look at the TA, there is a lot of, of data, you know, historical data that suggests that that stocks actually should end the year higher here. And, um, you know, he, he said, as you and I, as you've been talking a lot about, you know, this year is 
the the fundamentals really haven't mattered much to the market's direction this year. It's been a market that's been very driven mostly by TA and narrative. So, you know, Sven has basically said, look, you know, I, I have a really hard time making a bear case here right now um, while this is the case that the markets are responding to TA and the TA looks bullish. Um, yeah, and, let, me, and what, let, me, let me just put up one chart and let you respond then. Um, right. So he, he went through a ton of charts and I'm not going to repeat all, uh, you know, every chart that he mentioned. And folks, uh, if you want to go watch that video, you you really should to, to hear Sven's you know, see, see his litany of, of, of TA on this. But one chart, which isn't really even technically TA, is this chart here of seasonality of the S&P. So this is basically the blend of the, the past uh, 20 years of performance of the S&P. And he said, it's based, this year has basically played out almost exactly on this trajectory so far. Right. Uh, and, and if you look at it coming in here into September, um, you know, it actually looks like it, it it should pop up for a little bit and then cool off a little bit in October and then just make this run into the end of the year here, right? And he's he's saying, look, we who knows if it's going to continue to stick to script, but we're you know two thirds through the year so far, and this is how the script has been playing out. So you you got to kind of have some respect for this correlation well, until it breaks. Yeah. So leave that chart up for a second. Don't take yeah. that off because uh, I want you to look at that run up in, in that big decline in the market. That's Lehman. Um, so that was when Lehman crashed. And, and so when you have these kind of outsized movements in the markets, it tends to kind of skew the data. Uh, September 18th was Lehman. So that, that's kind of where you are on that clock. Um, so again, you strip that out that you, you don't quite have that big bump. It's more of a sideways trend. But very importantly, if you look from the beginning of August uh, through the end of September, market kind of goes nowhere and you strip out that Lehman moment and you kind of get the, the right, the better picture. But again, it's just where we are right now. Again, it's that seasonality play that we're talking about. And then at the end of the year, it's positioning and, and that type of stuff for, for the bulls. Real, real quick, I was, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but you know what you said was very key to the overall view. You said, well, you know, you take a look at the fundamentals, the fundamentals are pretty dismal. Fundamentals are terrible short-term indicators because it takes a long time for the markets to recognize the fundamentals. And so when we talk about things like valuations or fundamentals, these type of things, this is what gives you the best idea of what your returns will be over the next five to 10 years. So if I look at the fundamentals, I look at the valuations, stock returns are going to be very low over the next five to 10 years. X a, a massive surge in monetary liquidity. In other words, the Fed going back to massive rounds of QE and zero interest rates. Um, if you go back to, and, and, and we can put that into, into to more kind of finite numbers, if we strip out what happened from 2009 through 2022, really, because of all the Fed stimulus and, and all that, we get a much better picture of what markets kind of do over the long term. And so from 1900 to 2008, markets grew on average about 8%, which is exactly what you would expect given the economy grew at 6% and dividends on average, uh, on average, averaged about 2%. So 6% plus 2% is basically 8% growth. And so the markets kind of grew in line with the economy. However, you, you see the problem then really from 2009 to 2022, because the market grew at 12% on average during that period. So not only was the economy growing at 2% and dividend yields were growing at 2%, you had the, the market growing at, at uh, four percentage points above what the long-term average was from 1900 to 2008. 
And that's all that monetary liquidity. So Xing out that monetary liquidity, if we look forward over the next 10 to 20 years, returns on stocks should return to some level of economic growth, inflation, and dividends. So 2% economic growth is where we're headed back to. Inflation will be at 2%. Interest rates will be at 2% or less. And, and ultimately, dividend yields will be at 2% or less. So do the math. 2 plus 2 is 4. 4 plus 2 is, is at inflation adjustment of 2%. That's 6%. So the best you're going to be looking at really over the next 20 years is probably a 6% rate of return. Now, here's the critical part about this. Throw in valuations, you're now looking at basically 0% because the market's already priced in, overpriced in that 6% growth rate over the next 10 years. So now you're at zero uh, based on valuations. That doesn't mean that your stocks are going to return zero every year. What it means is you're going to have 10% one year, 10% one year. So now you're up 20%. Then you're going to lose 20% in the markets, and then you're going to grow at, at some level. And when you look over that 10-year period, you'll be exactly where you were when you started. Lance, that's never happened before in history. Well, from 1955 to 1970, it's exactly what happened. You actually lost 10% after, after inflation. Um, 2000 to 2013, on a real basis, your return was absolutely zero. So yeah, you go through these very long periods in the markets where valuations and fundamentals matter dramatically. In the short term, six months, 12 months, eight months, 15 months, 18 months, 24 months, fundamentals and valuations matter zero. It's all about market momentum, psychology, uh, trend of asset prices, the rush to, you know, the FOMO, the, the fear of missing out. So all that matters over a one to two year period is technical analysis, fundamentals, have nothing to do with the market at that point. All right. Um, so much there to dig into. Um, uh, so uh, I'll, I'll make another comment, uh, show another chart from Sven's that I, I, I think you're going to have a, you know interesting reaction to. But, um, you know, if all that matters right now is or in the short term is technical, well, right, like I said, that, that seems to be all that's been mattering this year, right? So it's sort of like we have to assume it's going to continue up until the point that it doesn't, right? Um, but when you talked about, uh, you know, the, the markets potentially offering a projected return from here of, of zero, you know, yeah. going forward for some period of time, um, one that's, you know, the argument that John Huspin, you know, has long been making with his charts, uh, the guys from New Harbor, uh, you know, they, they bring up Huspin's charts a lot. Um, and I just want to, I just want to clarify a point you made. So, when you, you you did the math there and you said, okay, you know, the economy was growing at 6%, and then we had the 2% dividend yields, and then the, the, there was the 8% that matched the average 8% market return over that long arc of the past century, more or less. Now, post-2008, the markets have grown a lot more than the underlying components. That delta, which is, you said, was being made up by the, the Fed stimulus and intervention, Right. You can basically say that that is basically pulling tomorrow's prosperity into today, right? So essentially what they've done is they've, they've, they've taken returns that we would have experienced in future years and they've pulled them earlier in along the timeline, meaning the further you go out the timeline, well, the piper eventually has to be paid and you're going to have these years of underperformance because you pulled all that performance in in advance, correct? Well, correct. And so look, at the end of the day, why, why do markets appreciate in price? Right. So so that's so that's the question you have to answer. You say, OK, well, the reason that stock prices appreciate is because people are paying for a future value of cash flows and a future value of earnings. 
So if we take a look, and let's just take a look at 2008 through 2022 as an example. So from 2008, really kind of the, let's just call it 2009. So from 2009, we'll get through the Lehman crash. From 2009 to 2022, revenue, which is what happens at the top line of the income statement, has grown in cumulative total, right? So the total growth of earnings over that period is about a little over 100%. It's about 105%. So in other words, if I had a dollar, if I was earning a dollar in 2009 as a company, today I'm earning $2. I've increased my revenue by 100%. The bottom line has grown by over 400%. So that's all the accounting manipulations. That's all the funny, the funny math that we use, uh, that we use operating earnings versus real, you know, real reported earnings to, to boost yeah. earnings and boost valuations. Stock buybacks have been a huge contributor to the to the fudging of the numbers. Um, so you know now what uh, earnings are or what people are doing is they're paying up way more for inflated earnings based on all this accounting gimmickry. And you've got to start to look back at, at the basic point is at some point that that math runs out. I can only buy back so many shares, or eventually I'm private, right? So right. I mean, there's only so many shares I can buy back. So all these the all these accounting gimmicks and things that that they're doing to boost earnings per share to justify valuations is all mostly accounting gimmicks, and those all have a finite nature. So at some point, the return of what happens, and again to your point, um, we've been pulling forward all of this hope. Uh, about the future is like, okay, I'm going to do this now. And and hopefully on the other side of this, we're going to get much stronger economic growth. Uh, consumers are going to start spending a bunch more money. My revenue will start to grow again at, at, at stronger rates to help support these valuations. The problem is we just never get there. The, the revenue growth hasn't really been increasing at a level to support the rate of earnings growth underneath. And you know all the accounting gimmickry and, and machinations, et cetera, is fine. There's nothing wrong with any of that. It's just you've got to be uh, I would say there is, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I'm just saying it's there's nothing illegal about it, right? Uh, you know, it, it's it's fine what they do, but even the Wall Street Journal did a study and found out, you know, they they surveyed all these CFOs and, and roughly about 10% of earnings are all fudge. I mean, they all admitted it. it says, yeah, we fudge about 10% of our earnings numbers because we have to meet those numbers because otherwise, if we don't meet the estimates from Wall Street, then you know we get pummeled in price, and so there's this kind of incestuous relationship between corporations and Wall Street to meet to meet these estimates. And this is why you know we're always talking about the beat the estimate game every time we get you know into the end of a quarter. I was like, okay, well, how are we going to beat the estimates this time around? Of course, we lower the estimates by Wall Street lowers the estimates, so companies can kind of hurdle over them, and everybody cheers that we've been beating estimates. Um, but but this is this is how and again this is why in the short term fundamentals don't really matter. It's all about psychology, right? Did I beat the estimates? Yes. Okay, buy the stock. But we don't really dig in um, to say, well, what really happened here with earnings? Are we really growing revenue? Well, we haven't grown revenue. You know, there's companies out there that are trading at massive valuations that haven't grown revenue in five years, right? I mean, um, you know, their earnings have improved a bit, but. They're, you know, they're 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 not growing revenue. They're a fully mature company, and and we're paying very large valuations for those. And so at some point that will come home to roost. But in the short term, it doesn't matter. And, and you've got to remember, take everything else aside. Back in the '60s and '70s, we used to invest really long term. The average holding period was six to eight years for a stock. So fundamentals value, you know, really meant a lot back in the '60s and '70s and '80s. 
when we were buying stocks because we were buying stocks with very long outlooks. And so if we're buying something and we're going to hold it for six, seven, eight years, I better make sure that earnings growth is there to support my outlook for that long-term period. Today, the average holding period is less than six months. So mm. earnings and growth and fundamentals, if your holding period is less than six months, none of that matters. It's all about market momentum, psychology, um, kind of Wall Street views. And because again, we 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 trade on earnings estimates. Earnings estimates going up, and boy, look at Nvidia. We better buy that because earnings estimates are going up. I'm just using that as an example, but that's all that matters in the short term. So all this fundamental talk is great, fine, dandy. The economy's doing this, and this sucks over here, and that's great over there. None of it really matters for the stock market, except in the short term, it's all about price momentum and psychology, because that's yeah, what it's, market short term. It, it's a great, great point. It, it's like a game of hot potato, right? Whereas like, as long as you can hand it off before it cools, that's, that's somebody else's problem to figure out, right? It, it's the greater fool theory. Yeah. And, and I was going to mention NVIDIA, um, but I think NVIDIA is a poster child of what you're talking about right now, where, you know, any way you look at the valuation right now, it's it's priced for I was going to say perfection, but I think it might be for better than perfection, right? And th there, there is a potential universe where NVIDIA meets, you know, all the expectations that are placed on the stock price right now. But as you've said, you know, competitors are going to be coming into this market, you know, at some point. And uh, it, this, we see this happen again and again, right? Where uh, just expectations keep getting ramped up to the point where the stock is the wonder stock until at some point, there's that disappointing quarter where people realize, oh my gosh, you know what? <laughs> yeah, we really got a little ahead of our skis here in terms of what's possible for this company. And then you have these big, massive, you know, price yeah. adjustments, right? Yeah. Um, and then, and, then, and just, just one last statement on this. And then you can't set aside the whole passive indexing effect that we've talked about so many times either. Right. The giant mindless robot of just of, of increasing percentage of every dollar that goes into the market goes into just a few stocks, which power the index indices higher. Um, as you were talking, you were, um, I was thinking about, you know, kind of this this collusion between corporate America and Wall Streets to kind of keep this great game of, of you know, wink, oh, wink, it's... nod, nod, deception going on. Um, uh, I was talking to somebody recently, uh, uh, sort of reflecting on the Tour de France um, and, you know, in particular, the, the Lance Armstrong era, right, where um, I actually I actually know a guy who rode on Team Postal and was involved in all of that. And um, it's a really interesting conversation, probably more than we have time to really dig into here. But, um, you know, there there was massive collusion, right? Massive collusion of the team owners, the team doctors, you know, the all the racers, right, to to be engaged in the doping and stuff like that to keep the game exciting, right? And 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 to keep a champion like Lance, you know, that story going because everybody loved it, right? Um, and even even the the race, you know, the Tour de France people who ran the race, who, you know, were in charge of the regulators who had to inspect the 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 riders to make sure that they weren't doping or whatever you know, they were clearly in on it and they, and they didn't want to expose what was going on because they didn't want to ruin the gravy train of all the ratings and sponsorships and everything like that. So, you know, there'd be things like if they were going to come test you, you know, they would tell you and they would give these guys and oftentimes, you know, several days of a warning notice or whatever so that they could, you know, clean their systems out and, you know, do the flushing and everything like that so that they could pass the test, right? It was just 
it was something that everybody just sort of said, oh, yes, of course, we police, you know, the integrity of the sport, but wink, wink, nod, nod, you know, we know you're going to do that and we're going to look the other way, right? It's it's very much kind of got that kind of feel here, which, of course, can last for a long time. I mean, how many championships did Armstrong win? Seven or whatever? And, and this stuff didn't even come out until after he retired. Right. You know, and, and, and when we look at that, you go, well, why would they do that, right? It's It, it all comes down to the money. Yeah, it was a gravy train. Right, it was because Lance Armstrong attracted viewers. The television networks, you know, Lance Armstrong's riding it. I mean, I watched Lance Armstrong ride, and I I don't even know that much about biking, but I would watch the Tour de France to watch him ride because he's my namesake. Um, so, yeah. <laughs> but but you know the, the the point is is that when you have and, and look, you know, we can go through every major sport, right? You know, you you go through baseball, you go through football, you go through all these other things, and and we've caught people in baseball, you know, uh, using steroids or corking bats, you know, whatever it is. Because they attract viewers, they put people in seats, and and you can't discount. And my my point is, you can't discount the fact of what money drives, and and this goes the same way with Wall Street and and companies. Uh, you know, I've done I've done articles on our website talking about the you know where do you right the average person fall into the importance of Wall Street? Um, where where is the consideration for you? Uh, you're at the very bottom. You Where's were, the bottom rung of the ladder, and then what's below that? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're way down there. What comes first? It's it's you know corporate profits. It's you know it's investment banking. It's you know the the important relationships with their pension funds and their and their managers. What matters to analysts is it really it, you know if you look at analyst estimates, they are wrong all the time. Like they're never analysts are never right ever ever right. Um, and, you know, but nobody cares about that because the reason that analysts always rate a company, and this is why, you know, there's no sell ratings on companies. They, they Every analyst rates a company a buy. At worst, they'll rate them a hold. And the reason is, is if, if I'm going out for investment banking and I want to get your secondary offering, which makes me millions of dollars as a company, and I've got a sell rating on your company, you're probably not going to want to do business with me. So, right. you know, this is all a very incestuous relationship that all revolves around money. And, you know, this is the one thing as an investor you've got to understand is that you can sit home and, and, and you know, sit on the sidelines. and it's like, I know this market's going to crash. Look at the economy or whatever. And yeah, maybe, but there's a huge incentive to keep this game going by Wall Street. And that's where all the money is. The money that drives the market is not retail investors. You've got your influence in the market is at the bottom rung and maybe a little bit lower. It's all about institutions, pension funds, hedge funds. And, and all these guys have a very, very close incestuous relationship to keep the game going because it makes them money. All right. And so, look, we're not trying to depress people, although it can be a little depressing. Um, well, just, you got to understand just, the truth, right? You, well, so. you got to understand the game that you're in. Exactly. Yeah. Right. If you're going to swim in these waters, you got to understand that there are whales and sharks and whatever. And, you know, you're you're probably a guppy. So you just got to learn how to navigate as a guppy. Yeah. Um, all right. So um, so Sven, Sven made a, a so again, I, I don't know if you had a chance to, to watch that uh, video with Sven Lance, but you should, because I, I think you would agree with a lot of it. Because um, a lot of the same, you know, his overarching point is sort of the same as the drum that you've been beating this year, which is, yes, there are lots and lots of macro reasons to be very pessimistic this market and, and be worried about a major correction or whatnot. Um, but that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to happen tomorrow in the way that the game is played. You know, it, they, they, they can push reality off for a long, long time, right? 
And so uh, that's allowed you to, you know, not be caught on the sidelines this year, right? So you've been able to participate in, in the run-up uh, here for your clients. You know, you, you've said, hey, you wish you'd, you'd gotten back in a little bit earlier and a little bit bigger in some of the names like NVIDIA, but still, you know, there's a lot of people that totally went to the sidelines, you know, back at the end of last year, understandably, because it looked like we were about to fall into a recession and everything looked terrible, and they've missed out this entire rally, right? And of course, that's that's the risk of perhaps being you know, 100% in on a, on a given thesis, right? You want to have some diversification uh, to make sure that if your primary thesis doesn't play out, you, you, you've got some hedges in place, right? But anyways, um, you, you have also cautioned bears, um, you know, people not to be too, too bearish. And you've, you've had a number of reasons for doing that. But Sven, who, um, you know, I, I think is kind of bearish by nature. Um, but but at the same time, he realizes you, 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 you got to be, long something to make money, right? Um, he brought up this great chart just as just as sort of like a sanity check for bears. Um, and this chart shows um, uh, the major corrections and the major rallies uh, in the S&P over the past, I don't know, you know, 15 years or so. Uh, no, not 15 years, sorry, past uh, six years. Yeah. Um, and basically you look at you look at this and you say, okay, wow, like the bearish corrections in the market are short. <laughs> they they are quick. Like if you're gonna make money on the bear side, like you don't have a lot of time to do that. Right. And yeah. the bullish periods are much longer, right? Yeah. So like the system supports the bulls, at least the system's the way that it runs. It's a lot easier to make money as a bull because you can jump in in one of those longer rallies and just kind of ride it, right? Yep. Um, whereas if you want to position yourself bearishly, you got to get your timing really, really right because uh, you know they don't happen all that often, but when they do, they're just over really, really quick, right? Well, look, um, bear, mar bear markets historically going back to 1900s are fairly short in nature. You know, look, and, and let's just for, you know, let's be a little bit more um, loose about the definition. Um, and if you look at 2022, peak of 2022 through the end of October, let's make that one big red box, right? I could have shorted in January of 2022. And in October, I'm feeling really good about my short position, right? Recession's coming. Everything looks terrible. The Fed's hiking rates. And then now my short is almost underwater again. Um, you know, and so, you know, this is the nature of bear markets in general. They tend to be very short lived, 12 to 18 months is about the longest of most bear markets on record. Uh, and I'm talking about real bear markets. And here, and, and this goes back to what you and I have talked about previously. Not one of those things on there that you're looking at is a bear market. And, right. and, to, to, and to Sven's point, these are corrections within a bullish trend. And this is the huge differential between a bear market and a correction. Corrections are extremely short-term in nature, they are fast, they are swift, and then the market quickly recovers back to all-time highs. And so what you notice is, is that most of these so far, and again, you know, when this market gets back to all-time highs at some point, you know, we'll look back and say, well, look, the, the bullish trend was never broken. If you draw a line across the bottom of that entire chart, you'll see that the, the bullish trend never broke. The market never reverted from rising prices to falling prices. We simply just got very extended in 2021 because of all that money we injected into the system. And 2022, we just returned back to the bullish trend. That's all that happened. 
there's been nothing hugely negative about this market really since 2009. And, and so to his point and to his credit, he's absolutely right. It's been very tough to be a bear um, since 2009 because every correction we've had has been very short-lived. By the time you realize you're wrong, you're underwater and it's just been easier to be long, right? And just kind of write it out. Right. And and so that was sort of his point here, which is, you know, not don't be bearish, but but if you are, again, just be aware of the conditions that have to play out for you to be right. And 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 as long as we're still in a bullish uptrend, the way that you're talking about on a secular basis, yeah. If you start making some money, you gotta ask yourself real quick, you know, on the bear side, okay, you know, do I need to do I need to lock in my gains here now or not? Because these tend to be pretty darn short, right? So Look, I'm not telling folks not to be bearish, and I'm certainly not telling folks not to be conservative here. I think we should actually, you know, definitely be conservative, uh, given these macro concerns that at some point, you know, uh, should matter. But don't be overly bearish in the way that you have been counseling folks not to be, Lance, because, you know, while we're still in this bullish uptrend here, um, that's just sort of the way the game plays out. And look, and look, we're very conservative as investors, right? I mean, we measure, we measure our risk, we monitor our risk, we, you know, we rebalance our portfolio to adjust for what we see as risk in the markets. So don't think for a moment that we're just saying, hey, don't be conservative with your money. But there's a huge difference between being conservative and being out of the market, right? You can be conservative and be fully invested in stocks in the market. That that is completely doable. You may you're just not going to own seven stocks. So, so you know, just talking about a portfolio. Let's say that you're very conservative by nature. You don't want to risk a bunch of money. That's fine. You can still have a hundred percent equity in the market. That's fine. You're not going to own seven stocks. That would be hugely aggressive and hugely risky. But I can I can balance my portfolio across sectors of the market, across stocks in the market. Because there's a lot of companies out there that simply trade very cautiously, very conservatively. They don't go up a lot. They don't go down a lot. They kick off a dividend. And during times of, of market stress, they're not going to hurt you. They're basically kind of a bond in equity disguise. So that's certainly very easy to do. But we often confuse this idea of, oh, if I'm in stocks, I've got all this risk. So I'm going to be conservative. So I'm going to be all in cash. And then the market takes off and you're like, well, now I'm all in cash. I've got to get back in the market. Of course, now you're buying the market probably at a peak because by the time you realize that you've missed the boat, it's the market's already made its move. So you buy at the top, then you wind up losing money. So you get all back out again. And, and this is why the average investor over time vastly underperforms the markets because they buy high, they sell low, they do exactly the opposite of, of what you need to be doing. All right. All right. All right. So look, got to move on from here. Sure. Um, that's all. We could do a whole show on this. Uh, we, we we totally yeah. could. But folks, um, again, I highly recommend watching that video with uh, with Sven. Um, all right. Well, look, uh, just sticking on markets for a moment. So uh, bond yields, uh, U.S. Treasury yields uh, remain elevated here at this point in time. We were talking a little bit about this before we started recording, Lance, but the 10 years, I think back in the 4.2% or so range as we're talking here. Um so uh, anything notable about yields right now in terms of as, as stocks are struggling to find their their feet here? No, no, not at all. I mean, yields really haven't done much of anything. You know, we just kind of keep trading back and forth and we're trading in a range. And, and again, you know, kind of if you look at kind of where we are economically at the moment, we're still kicking off about four, four and a half percent economic growth. We're going to, you know, the Atlanta Fed right now is projecting roughly about a five percent growth rate uh, nominal uh, for the third quarter. So if the economy is growing at four to 5%, uh, 
Um, inflation's running at 3.3%-ish. So four, four and a quarter percent rate on the 10-year treasury is about right where it should be, you know, give or take a little bit. So, you know, as economic growth continues to slow, as inflation continues to decline, then interest rates are ultimately going to start to trade in a range relative to economic growth and inflation because interest rate function of economic growth and inflation. That is what drives the yield. If I'm if I'm loaning Adam money and I go, okay, I'm going to give Adam money for 10 years, I have to compensate for what economic growth is going to be opportunity costs, basically. Could I invest in something else that, you know, if, if the economy is growing at three, but I think it's going to six, um, you know, I need to charge Adam more because I've got opportunity loss that's going to occur over a 10-year period as the economy continues to get stronger. Um, you know, if inflation's running, I've got to adjust for my lending rate so that the money I have on an inflation-adjusted basis gives me my rate of return. I've, of course, I got to compensate for his risk of repayment, but with government treasuries example, there's no risk of repayment, so there's no adjustment for that. So I've got to factor all these things in. That's what generates that 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 yield or that coupon, um, you know, on these bonds. And so that's why there's always historically a very high relate high correlation between interest rates, economic growth, and inflation. And so as those things continue to to slow, and they will, um, interest rates will will start to come down. But right now, interest rates are about right where they should be. Okay. Um, I, I should note too, just before fully moving on from um, some of the, the um, commonalities between your outlook and Sven's, um, I, I did sort of ask him to look forward uh, and uh, you know share his trajectory of how he thinks the markets are going to play out from here. Yep. And he basically said, "Look, you know, until until we see some breakages of some of these key uh, technical." Uh, levels, right? So like, as you've, as you've said, you know, even the correction that we just had, you know, we didn't take out the lower, the, the longer moving averages, right? No. We didn't get anywhere close to the 200 DMA, that type of stuff, right? So he said, as long as this market's sort of still following the TA, you know, he thinks it's going to go higher from here for some period of time. How long? He doesn't know, right? right. Uh, but he does <laughs> think that something will break. You know, that that interest rates this high, cost of debt this high for the government, for corporations, for households is going to break something. The Fed is going to have to intervene. So basically, the fundamentals are going to matter at some point. Right. Uh, and so he expects that there will then be a pretty sharp market correction, you know, in that process to be followed by, you know, dramatic uh, central bank uh, rescue efforts uh, that will then probably eventually reinflate things and you know resurge the markets again. Very similar to you and many of the people that are on this channel. So he's not saying it's going to be bullish forever. Right. Uh, he's basically just saying like you know we 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 have to keep our eyes at the on the door, knowing that at some point fire is going to break out in the dance hall here. But music's still playing. You know, yeah. right now nobody sees any flames or smells any smoke. Right. Well, that's why I said, you know, technical analysis is great for six to nine months, 12 months, because it just is a reflection of market psychology. Just remember that the market is a big, giant organism, right? That's the, and so it's a living, breathing thing that is comprised of two types of people. You have buyers and sellers. And that's why it's called a market, right? Because every day, every moment, every second of the trading day, there's a bunch of people over here thinking they're smart by buying something. And there's the same number of people over here selling stuff thinking they're smart. But 
it's all about psychology in the short term. And so that's why technical analysis really in the short term is all that matters. But yes, we, we analyze fundamentals. We own companies that fundamentally are very cheap. And we know that long term, we're going to get paid handsomely for owning those stocks. But we also have a portion of the portfolio that's dedicated to momentum and psychology and what's happening in the markets, because that's what generates returns in the short term. Uh, while we're waiting for those longer term fundamentals to ultimately matter. And, and Sven is absolutely right, is that in the next 6, 12, 18, 24 months, the higher cost of debt is going to be problematic. I wrote about this in last weekend's newsletter. There's a tremendous there's a tremendous debt wall coming up over the next couple of years. Refinancing is going to be problematic. Uh, tighter financial conditions across the board. We're now reaching some levels on financial conditions that have always, always preceded recessions. Now, real, real, real quick, I got an email on this last week, and I just want to clarify something. When we're talking about financial conditions, we are talking about economic financial conditions. There is another financial conditions index that gets circulated around the market a whole bunch. It says, look how easy financial conditions are. That is all market-based. It is debt yield spreads. It is the market and, and other some other factors that are comprised that. Yes, that indicator shows a very loose financial condition market because nobody's worried about risk, right? Yields are very compressed right now because nobody's worried about a blowout in high yield. Yet, when that begins to occur, that financial condition index will catch up with everything else because that will always kind of be the, the, the opposite side of the story because as real financial conditions start to loosen, that will be tightening at the same time. And that'll be because the Fed's stepping in to bail out things, something's broken, you've had a recession, whatever it is. But it's always important to understand what the drivers are of financial conditions. And when we look at the economic financial conditions, interest rates, the dollar, um, you know, uh, the Fed funds rate, et cetera, those are very restrictive and at levels. And I've built some composites um, that, I've, that I've been producing lately on our website and on Twitter, uh, showing that these are very, very restrictive levels. And they have always preceded a recession when you're at these levels. And that's just simply because we have so much debt in the economy, high interest rates are going to cause a constriction in consumption at some point down the road. It's just a question of when we get there. And when you do that, then earnings are going to decline and market prices and valuations will have to readjust to compensate for that. So yes, um, fundamentals will matter at some point, but that's why we allow the technicals to tell us when to start making that more movement back towards cash and, and other areas. Okay. Um, oh, real real quick, funny. one more, one more yeah. statement. Um, and, and this is the best indicator, right? sell the last Fed rate hike. If you go back through history, every time the Fed stops hiking rates, you're within six to nine months of an economic recession. So there's kind of an axiom in the market. You sell the, Fed, the, the, the last Fed rate hike and you buy the last Fed rate cut. Okay. Now, of course, the Fed's never going to tell you for certain this was our last hike, right? <laughs> so yeah, you're going no, to take some guesstimate in there, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you'll, you'll know because they'll stop, but we'll go, uh, you know, six, we'll go, you know, three, four, five meetings where they don't hike rates. But again, you can, you don't have to worry about that. Just wait until they say, hey, we're going to cut rates. Yep. And then when they get to zero, start buying with both hands because once they get to zero, they can't cut anymore. <laughs> so. <laughs>
Um, you know, it's so funny. You, you, you talk about, you know, this indicator that has just always double extra, you know, been correlated with the recessions. And and I get it that people today are just kind of like yawn, right? Like, I mean, okay, let's add that to the list, right? That hasn't mattered all year, right? And just uh, because it hasn't mattered in, in a year doesn't mean it won't. And again, we talked oh, about I, last I year. know you and I talk yeah. about it all the time. Yeah, you know, last year, store for beating that drum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, everybody last year was, oh, a recession's coming, a recession's coming. And I was telling you then, it's like, hey, we're probably not going to have a recession until the end of 24 because, you know, everybody's expecting a recession. You know, and Bob Farrell, um, you know, when everybody expects something to happen, something else tends to occur. Now nobody expects a recession. That's actually great. Um, but importantly, it's always about, you know, you know, interest rates and Fed rate hikes and those type of things. And we are just now entering that six to nine to 12 month period to where the clock is now ticking for that next recession. So we're in September add nine to 12 months, you know, next September, next, you know, October, November, December, we're probably going to, you and I will probably be sitting here talking about, you know, economic growth and risk of recession. Um, all right. So it seems like you and Sven and so many other people, you know, think that that general arc that I described a few minutes ago is what's going to play out, right? Yeah. Um, and and part of that arc, right, involves debt spreads blowing out, right? So you said, you know, you just said, look, nobody's worried about risk, right? Credit spreads still super tight, right? So to me, that kind of seems like, I don't want to say the word sure bet, there are no sure bets, but it seems like a highly confident uh, gamble or highly confident bet that um, at some point they're going to blow out, right? And we don't know if it's going to be tomorrow or if it's going to be in nine months, whatever, right? Yep. I mean, does it make sense while in theory they're super tight and therefore, you know, something like a leap on them would be super cheap um, that you'd want to start at least dollar coverage cost averaging into some instrument that's going to benefit when those spreads start blowing out if you feel like that is sort of an essential step on the way to this this arc unfolding you know it, it's look it's it's you know kind of going back to trying to short the market here so here's the the problem that you've really had since really about 2018 you know it took about from 2009 to 2018 you know we had the government keep you know the fed kept stepping in and bailing stuff out and everybody was like okay well yeah, they're bailing out this time, but it's not going to work next time. And then after the third time, everybody's like, okay, well, they're just going to do this every time. And so, you know, kind of like training Pavlov's dogs, we've now taught everybody that if anything happens, the Fed's going to run in and bail stuff out. I mean, 2020 was a great example, right? They actually bailed out junk bonds in 2020, right? And yep. they were buying junk bond ETFs, which totally against their ability to do, but they manufactured that through BlackRock. Um, but the, the whole rant for another show. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, the, the thing is, is, again, markets are about psychology. And right now, everybody's bailing into high yields like, oh, I can buy this high yield bond and I can get more than the Treasury. And, and this is, you know, so I'm making more money. Under the belief that no matter what happens, the Fed's going to bail that out. Right. So if, if Boeing goes bankrupt or if General Electric went bankrupt, pick a company, I'm not picking on them, I'm just throwing out names, Apple was going to go bankrupt, that the government's going to step in and go, well, that's a systemically important company. We can't let Boeing go under because, you know, we're, you know, we're a manufacturing economy. It's complete, mind you, right, to, to, to say that companies are so important, 
we can't, I know you're going to bleep that out, but you know, the companies are so important that we can't let them fail is complete nonsense. This is the reason that we have bankruptcy laws in, in the country. Um, but we have decided as a country to bail out all these companies. We don't want to allow anybody to go into bankruptcy because that would just be terrible. People would lose their jobs. And, and again, it's, it's just nonsense. But this is all about politics at the end of the day and getting reelected and keeping the money in that and moving in the right directions. So we've we've ignored, you know, our rule of law and, and we've ignored our processes for dealing with these situations that would have allowed some of this excess to get pulled out of the market. And we talk about forest fires are healthy for the markets. Uh, sorry, for forest fires are healthy for the forest. But, you know, recessions and, and bankruptcies are actually healthy for the market. It gets out the weak players. It provides opportunity for new players to come in and take advantage of, of a space that gets opened up. And we and we build better, stronger, healthier companies and better, stronger, healthier economies. But we don't want to do that because we don't want the pain short term. Right. We don't want that. So now we've trained all these investors that I can take on an unlimited amount of risk because I know the Fed's going to bail me out. So we may not see that big blowout of spreads that we've seen historically. I'm not saying that's the case, absolutely. But I'm just saying there's a potential that mm -hmm. if you try to make a bet on credit spreads blowing out at some point, that you might not get paid for that because the Fed steps in and you know suppresses the, the blowout to keep it from rolling into the rest of the economy and the financial system. I'm not saying that's absolutely the case. I'm just saying that's to your thesis, while right, doesn't mean now that it'll necessarily happen. So it's, it's no, that's true. I mean, you could say that for any bearish bet, right? Which is yeah. just, hey, you know, Papa Fed's going to come in and just always make it right, right? right. Um, look, it's been, it's now, been, of course, they didn't been, in 2022, but yeah. Yeah, but look, but nothing really melted down in 2022. I mean, there's, no, you're right. I mean, that's what they wanted to see, right? They wanted to see some yeah. correction that didn't involve a rescue, didn't need to have a rescue. Yeah. And, and look, all your major companies went down a little bit, but not a lot. I mean, you look underneath the surface in the small and mid caps, the road got to, crushed. Yeah. Yeah. The, the ARC investments, and those, those things got completely decimated. But those are such a small impact on the financial markets and really the overall economy that the Fed's like, yeah, whatever. As long as Apple, Microsoft, Google, those guys don't go down with the ship, we're OK. Right. <laughs> because, you know, hey, that's, so, that's so, sorry to interrupt, but like, yeah, you know, we on in the capitalist West, right? You know, we talk about the evils of the communist regimes where, you know, everything is state owned. And, you know, you think of a company like Russia, you know, I remember in my, my very early days in investment banking, I was involved in a lot of international uh, privatizations. And, you know, they just have these massive state owned companies that, you know, it's the one company that's responsible for all the electricity in, in the country, right? Or, you know, all the all the water, all the oil, whatever, right? And we talk about, you know, kind of how that's so sclerotic, right? There's no competition. You just have one big, you know, entity that owns the whole space, right? It's like, it's almost like our, you know, I know we talk about how we don't have capital, true capitalism anymore. We've got corporatism, but it's it, it, it just increasingly feels like the same way, right? Where we, we, we've let these cartels emerge, but now they're protected by the government, right? Like, so... Basically, what you're saying is, is look, the Fed doesn't really care about all the other companies. It doesn't care about the S&P 495. 
but it sure cares about the S&P 5 because yeah. there's so much a percentage of the market value out there and, and so much of a percentage of what's driving the economy that they're going to do whatever it takes to keep those guys going. It's basically just like a, a carbon copy of, of the communist model in some ways. It is. And and we're paying the consequence for that, too. Um, you know, it's it's you know, we see this in the kind of the dysfunction of the markets. We see it in the dysfunction of the economy. We see it in the the spread of wealth between the haves and the have nots. And we and we you know, we talk about these problems that long term are going to be very economically damaging, uh, you know, for the, the the younger crowd that's coming out and think I'm old, I'm going to die soon. So, you know, it won't, won't affect me. But <laughs> for the Gen Z's coming up, they're going to, you know, pay the price for this. And they don't realize it yet, but it's coming. And the debt matters. The debt matters a lot. And, you know, it. and I keep, you know, we go, I probably bring this up every week on the show is that if you just want a good, you know, kind of, you know, microcosm of where we're headed, just go take a look at Japan. All right, they're 30 years ahead of us, but where they are is exactly where we're headed. And 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 unfortunately for you know, and I saw an interesting tidbit this morning on I think it was on TikTok or somewhere, but it was a, a post by a very young person. It's like, you know, when you, you mean to tell me that I'm gonna have to work a nine to five job for the rest of my life, right? This is this is this is what I'm gonna be doing every day for the rest of my life is coming to this job and having to work until five o'clock at night and then go home, you know, who signed up for this was his, was his last kind of point. You know, what, what is, the, you know, is this what life is supposed to be like? And, you know, this is the realization that, you know, eventually that group has got to come to is that we're in a transitional time within the economy to where, yeah, the boom times that we had back in the 60s and the 70s when we were producing and manufacturing and, and building and constructing and looking ahead. You know, you go back to the state fairs in the in the 70s where you had all the exhibits of, of you know, the future tomorrow. The, and, and we were we were visionaries back then. We, were, we looked forward. You know, we were looking at going to the stars and exploring space and innovating, and growing and doing all these things. And now we spend all day with our faces and computers you know, kind of regurgitating data all day long, guilty as charged. Um, you know, and, and so, but we've moved into the service society, which is an immediate gratification society and not a building society. And we're paying, and, and that has to, a service society has to be supported by debt because you have slower rates of economic growth. And of course, the more debt you have, the slower growth you have. And it's just a very vicious cycle that leads to more and more income inequalities across economies. And, and, and that's just something that, Eventually, we're gonna have to face, and unfortunately, it's kind of like being, you know, getting overweight. You didn't get overweight overnight. You're not gonna get skinny overnight. You're gonna have to go through the whole process of diet and exercise. And I know it sucks and it's painful and it's terrible, but you eventually get back, you know, to being in shape and life is better. You feel better. You look better. You know, life generally just is better. Um, you know, when you're healthy. But you didn't. You're not going to get there overnight. And we keep looking for the quick fix, right? We want to try. It's like, oh, if we just do A, B, or C, if we just do MMT, we're going to be fine. This will fix everything overnight. We'll be able to pay for everything, and that doesn't work. And it's just going to have to be a realization when we get there. Yeah. Well, I mean, what you're describing, right, is is sort of the cleansing element of the fourth turning, right? Which is the, the pain and the cleansing, right? It's it's where the status quo falls apart and something different and hopefully better replaces it. And then you start a new growth cycle. Um, 
and you know we've talked about that a lot especially in the wake of the the uh recent interview i did with uh demographer neil howe and folks you should watch that if you haven't yet um all right uh but we had had a depression you know we went through the depression and you know went through a cleansing and so it's just about time to do that again unfortunately yeah and you know i've talked about this a lot with many folks in this channel so we won't go into the, the weeds of it but you know we we have a we have a monetary system that you know basically doesn't have a limit on how much money can be created right and this is not unique to america right it's now the 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 major the majority of the major world nations out there um really almost all of them at this point um and uh and and to create money you, you it's actually created through debt the issuance of debt right and so we, we have this kind of end game baked into our monetary regime here right which you just get to a point where you just have too much unserviceable debt that the system just doesn't work anymore and you know what's crazy is is we're just trying to to your point always finding the next quick fix that'll let us just kick the can a little bit further down the road uh but nobody is asking the question of okay but like at some point there's just mathematically a point at which we can't do that anymore and the whole thing collapses but nobody wants to actually admit that or deal with it right it's someone Um, else's problem hopefully in the future well, yeah, and that's why, you know, I've, I've said, you know, hey, I'm going to run for president. And, you know, my platform is simple. First thing I'm going to do is I'm going to cut government by about two thirds. I'm going to return most of the departments back to the state. The, the You know, all I'm going to be responsible for in Washington is just national infrastructure and defense. Outside of that, everything else belongs to the state. Education, oil and gas production, energy, you know, everything. That goes back to the states. Let them deal with it. Then once I've slashed the budgets and cut spending in Washington, then I'm going to come to the American people and go, Okay, here's what we're going to do. Now it's your turn, right? And here's the sacrifices you're going to have to make. We're going to have to deal with Social Security. We've got to deal with Medicare. We've got to deal with all these type of things. Uh, we can't do a lot of the stuff that you want to do, um, you know, in terms of just, you know, funding anything and everything that's just not sustainable or usable. And we're going to have to go through this period. Of course, you know, that's going to lead to a very depressive state in the economy for about two or three years. And, but coming out on the other side of that, we're going to be much healthier and be able to grow much stronger. But nobody wants to deal with that two or three year pain to get there. And this was my argument about the financial crisis should have never bailed out the banks. We would have had a much healthier banking system coming out in 2009, 10, because we wouldn't have had, you know, five banks making up 40 percent of the banking industry. Now they make up 60 percent of the banking industry. We would have had a much more diversified financial industry, would reduce risk across the board, but it would have been very painful. And a lot of people would have lost jobs and it would have been terrible. People would have lost their homes, but the people who lost homes would have been able to relocate to areas where there were jobs instead of locking them in. We'd be 10 years into the boom by now if we had done that, right? Absolutely. But again, it's it's always about the avoidance of the short-term pain. We as Americans have gotten very complacent and we don't want to deal with the short-term pain to fix things. And this is why things keep getting worse because we keep coming in with all kinds of new programs about how to fix something without actually fixing it. <laughs> and we're just going to paper over it. And that goes from healthcare to finance to Wall Street. I mean, you just right down the road, instead of doing what it takes to fix these problems and make things better, more affordable and, and, and more usable and letting capitalism actually grow and, and flourish and, and work as it's supposed to, because capitalism is very brutal. It's very Darwinistic, right? The strong survive, the weak perish. That's exactly how capitalism is supposed to work. And you have better growth out of that over time and better economic prosperity for everyone in the economy, not just the few. I know. And, you know, 
We've talked about this in the past and we've got way more stuff to get through to get too distracted on this I'm rant. Not, but like no, I'm just no, I'm not ranting. I'm just saying this is why nobody will vote for me. I keep running for yeah. president nobody votes for me. Well, I'm I, I'm gonna vote for you, but I definitely <laughs> will will encourage you to move the Oval Office up into space because uh you're gonna have a big target on your head as you force the country to go through these lean years. Um <laughs> But, uh, you know, uh, you know, we are not the greatest generation, right? We, 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 we just don't have the, the spine, the fortitude, the constitution of, of the society that clawed their way out of the depression and fought both world wars and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and, and we have really developed a cultural um, aspiration to feeling no pain, right? You know, to being helicoptered and guaranteed a safe space and free of all aggressions, macro or micro, right? And that's that's the antithesis of what we need to go through what you're talking about, right? So, right. I also realized when I when I made that that you, all this messaging is is vastly more important for Gen Z, right? Because that's the generation and the ones below that are really going to have to come up with this long term solutions to this. They're going to feel the brunt of the pain as us older folks die off over the next couple of decades, right? But I, I realized as I made that comment about carbon being a carbon copy it's like yeah that's right any any younger people listening to this probably actually have never seen carbon paper they probably don't get that analogy right <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah um all right well look uh uh you made a comment earlier and forgetting what it was but it was a good segue to this next topic which is um uh you wanted to share i think a chart that uh, a viewer had sent your way um but basically explaining that uh while we have the Fed is, you know, as I've talked about, we've got the Fed jamming on the monetary brakes, but we've got the fiscal side of the equation hitting the gas with all the deficit spending we're doing. You're saying actually the Fed may not just be hitting the brakes. They may actually be doing some stealth QE. So can you elaborate yeah. on that? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting just as, you know, we talk about that is like, oh, the Fed's got the Fed's doing QT and they are right. So they are reducing their balance sheet by 60 to 90 billion dollars a month. And that's a very true statement. Um, but there is, you know, kind of an interesting, you know, byproduct of that or kind of an interesting you know, backdrop to that as well, because, you know, this has been one of the arguments for why interest rates are going to go to the moon, because the Fed's selling treasuries now that they're in QT. And that's not really the case, and and again, you know, we've talked about this a lot on the show, and, and we've and, and we've talked about you know kind of our bond positioning and why we're positioned in, in a certain way in our in our bond portfolio, and what you know we're expecting to come down the pike uh, here very shortly. Hold on, and while I'm talking, I'm just uh, getting this uh, chart put together. Um, so what this chart is, and again, this is I wish I, I had the viewer's name, and I apologize that I don't. And but if this is your chart, um, thank you very much. It was it was really well done. But what this is, is this is a breakdown of the Fed's balance sheet of, by maturity. So you have, you know, bonds are maturing in 15 days, bond maturing in 16 to 90 days, uh, 90 to a year, uh, one to five years, five to 10 years and over 10 years. Um, you know, what's important here is, and we've talked about this before, the Fed is doing QT. So people have assumed that the Fed is selling treasuries and they aren't really selling treasuries. Um, unless they need to. And when they're selling treasuries, they're selling only fractional bits here and there. Mostly what they're doing is that over really since 2012, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, all those years uh, of, of doing QE, they were buying a lot of shorter duration treasuries. And, and they were buying things that were maturing. And they were buying 10-year treasuries, 
but these 10-year treasuries might have only had, you know, five years to maturity or, or seven years to maturity at the time. And so fast forward, you know, five, six, seven, eight, nine years, a lot of these bonds are now maturing. And so the Federal Reserve is going, okay, I've got these bonds that are maturing. I've got 60, then just kind of the, just use some easy math here just for everybody. Let's say I want to reduce my balance sheet by $50 billion this month, but I have $70 billion worth of, of bonds that are maturing. And so I've actually got to go in and buy $20 billion worth of bonds. Now, when you look at this chart, look at the orange line. Since 2018, that orange line has really been in, I'm sorry, I said 2018, I apologize. Since 2019, really 2019, early 2020, um, when we started kind of going through all of our problems, the Fed's actually been buying long dated treasuries. That orange line has been rising as the other bonds are maturing and you're getting this roll off. So as these bonds are rolling off, they may be having, they, they are reducing their balance sheet. If you look at QT, you say, well, Lance, the balance sheet's coming down. It is, but they're just letting a lot of these shorter duration bonds mature and they're, all, and they're buying the, the gap that they need to keep that runoff rate at 60 billion. So if they have a hundred billion coming due, they may have to step in and buy, you know, 20 or 30 billion in a month to keep that runoff rate at 60 billion. And so you can just kind of see this is a, a percentage of the total maturities. And, and, and if you look at the purple line, which has been your biggest decline, that is, is bonds maturing over one to five years. That's where the QT is happening. And then underneath the surface, they're buying long duration bonds, the 10 year bonds that are maturing in over 10 years. That's what they've been buying and, and shifting the balance sheet into. So let me ask a couple of questions about this. Um... I don't know if we actually know for sure, but um, are they are they necessarily buying the the ten year and more, or is it just as the the shorter dated uh, instruments roll sure, off, the percentage of the portfolio that remains is is yeah. increasing, right? That's part of it. That's also part of it. But you should also start seeing if that was the case, you'd have your if they weren't doing some buying, and again, I'm not saying they're just buying hand over fist, don't get me wrong. Um, I'm just saying is that when they have more maturities coming due than, than their 60 to 90 billion a month, whatever it is they're wanting to, to tighten, they're having to buy the differential. So if you've got 100 billion coming due, I've got to buy an extra 10 billion, right? But if, you, if, it, was, if it was simply a function that, you know, it was just the decline in, in the one to five years, you would also be seeing big declines in some of the shorter duration treasuries, which they're also buying, um, but those aren't declining at, at a clip. So part of it is, yes, just the re, re, the rebalancing of the port, uh, of the overall balance sheet because you do have a roll-off uh, shorter versus longer, but they're also having to buy to make up the difference. But, but the, the point that really you want to make here is that there's been a lot of talk about, oh, well, the, the interest rates are going to go up, you know, kind of ad nauseum here because – the Fed's just selling long, you know, long dated treasuries, and they're really not. Okay, so uh, it's more of a maturity we, game than a, than a selling game. Yeah, so I, I guess we would assume that the ten-year would be at a higher yield right now if this were not going on. Probably. Right? So we've had some people out there. You know, we talked a little bit about this the other week, where you know everybody was like, "Oh, Fed's going to pivot. Fed's going to pivot, 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 pivot for you know a year and a half." And boy, rates are going to come down as soon as that happens, right? To all of a sudden, oh my God, rates are just going to keep going up now, and the world's ending because you know bond yields are going to the moon. 
Um, and and nobody wants to buy treasuries anymore. And 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 Janet Yellen just announced that she's going to release another 1.9 trillion in the second half of this year. Um, So it could be what part of the Fed is doing there is just trying to mop up the excess supply in treasuries so that yields don't get too big. Right. Well, also too here. Let me let me share this chart one more time. And because there there you know again, you know when we talk and to your point about where yields are. So again, we we had this decline initially. So this is so this is the second quarter of 2020, right? So here's the pandemic sell-off, okay? So to your point about inflation and interest rates and, and going back. So if the Fed wasn't buying these longer dated treasuries, what should the interest rate be when inflation in 2021 and 2022 was running at 9%? Right? It shouldn't be four, for sure, right? Because if inflation's running at eight, six, seven, eight, nine percent, the interest rate on the 10-year treasury should align more closely with what and what was economic growth doing. We're growing at 12% economically. Interest rates should have been shooting off to the moon. We should have been at six, seven, eight percent interest rates, not barely clipping four. So there was a lot of buying in here to keep that longer end of the of the duration of interest rates down as well, because uh, because the Fed has to know, just like everybody else does, if interest rates on ten-year Treasury went to seven, eight, nine percent, we would have been in a really massive recession pretty quickly. Okay. So basically what you're saying is, is the Fed is engaged in QT along with its rate hikes trying to cool the economy, but it is trying to prevent something from breaking um, by doing what it can to keep uh, yeah. the, the longer end of the yield curve contained. Yeah. And look, that's just what tell that's what the data tells me. I don't know. I have I, I am not in communication with the Federal Reserve. I'm not looking at their buying and selling every day. But when I look at what interest rates are doing. And then you look at this breakdown of what's rising in the balance sheet, what's falling. It certainly adds some credence to the theory about why interest rates aren't shooting off to the moon when everybody thought they were going to. Okay, and and I guess it gives us some confidence that, man, if the Fed is even continuing to buy as it does QT, that if it if it takes the the chains off and decides it really wants to get into rescue mode, it can just buy out the wazoo because it's even buying when it's technically selling. (laughs) Okay. Um, So let's move on to another uh, series of charts that you put out recently. Um, You just came out with a piece that I thought was really interesting about uh, the importance of the difference between GDP and GDI and how those are very diverged right now. Um, but that uh, that divergence probably isn't going to last forever, uh, and that divergence is telling us an important story. Yeah. So you know this, and and this is you know part of you know a lot of things that we kind of continue to talk about. So you know again, let's go just just revisit our our conversation a little bit earlier, talking about hey the the market's technically bullish, and you know it's all those other things. I'm bearish by nature. I mean that's just my nature. Um, you know, I'm very conservative, so I guess that puts me in the bearish camp because I'm always kind of looking out for what the next shoe is that's going to fall. So one of the hardest things for me to do is be bullish on the market. And so, that's so basically, all- you're you're an eagle, but instead of feathers, you've got fur and you've got claws at the end of your wings. <laughs> Bingo! Uh, you know, that's that's I guess that's the best way to put it. 
But that's why, you know, look, I've published a lot of articles lately. Uh, is a recession coming or is it was one that we wrote just, you know, uh, back on August the 8th. Right. So, you know, I've been writing a lot of articles kind of questioning this this theme of the market, this kind of no landing type scenario. You know, is that really a, a valid point? This weekend's newsletter, by the way, I'm going in to the link between oil and inflation and economic growth and, and all those type of things, because there's been a lot of talk over the last couple of weeks that, oh, rising oil prices is going to lead to a massive surge in inflation. Not really, because inflation is only about 7% oil and we strip that out. So, you know, what really drives inflation? We talk about that. And then, but we do look at the, the economic link between oil prices and what happens to the economy. So that's in the newsletter this weekend. But today's blog, so every Friday we produce a, what we call a, a macro blog, a macro view blog, and kind of touch on some of these bigger kind of overriding uh, economic data points. And so um, let me, uh, let me, I'm, I was, while I was chattering there with you for a second, I was actually pulling up the article so I could just share some of the charts with you. Um, so first thing is, is that this is the city economic surprise index. And, you know, so you can see in 2022 through July of 22, the, the data was vastly really disappointing what economists were expecting. So naturally, when the data keeps coming in a lot worse than, than what you were estimating, because again, you know, going, remember going into 2022, everybody was super bullish. You know, we're just going to keep growing. Don't worry about what the Fed's doing. It's all good. You know, this economy is super strong. Um, so nothing's going to nothing's going to derail this train. Right. This party's going to keep going. So economists were, were bringing it all. The economy's going to grow at six percent or ISM is going to be at 58 percent. And so the data as the economy was weakening was coming in a lot weaker. So not surprisingly, you know, these estimates, these, these surprises were coming in to the negative side. Well, beginning in, in really July of last year, um, the economic data has been a lot better than everybody because everybody got super bearish. All the economic analysts got very bearish. They were coming in with very low estimates. And now the data is beating them. So obviously, since we're all humans, if I'm getting beat every month by the economic data, what am I going to do? I'm going to start ratcheting up my estimates. And so now we've gone from definitely having a recession back in 2022 to well, obviously, look how good the economic data has been. No recession whatsoever now. And that's that's the cycle that we've been in. So now, this is what we talked about earlier. Now we have the potential for the economic data to start disappointing again as we go forward. But this this all is going to lead us into this conversation about GDP versus GDI. Um, so GDP as a function is the gross domestic product. So this is a measure of, you know, how do we calculate GDP? It's almost 70%, it's like 68% personal consumption expenditure. So it's what you and I do. The rest of that, so, so let's just say it's 70, just easy math. The other 30% of the economic equation is business investment, government spending, and imports less exports. So it's net exports. And, and so that's how we calculate GDP. We also take a look at, and, and this doesn't get any type of, of coverage whatsoever, but is gross domestic income, which is the income that's produced in the economy. And so logically, and we're gonna get into charts on this in a second, but just logically in your mind, income and production should probably be pretty close in nature since one goes to the other. We're gonna talk about this in more detail here in a second, but if we take a look at, and here's the important part about the debt we talked about earlier, 
everybody keeps expecting we're having these stronger rates of economic growth in the future. You know, the market right now and economists are saying, oh, we're going to start growing at 3%. Lots of talk recently about the neutral rate needs to go from 2% to 3% because the economy is going to be growing a lot faster now. So the 2% neutral rate, which is where interest rates in the economy are, are kind of neutral, they're, they're not impeding each other, and they're all kind of operating normally, that needs to be moved up, right? And so at the recent uh, Jackson Hole Summit, Jerome Powell said, no, nope, we're staying at 2%. <laughs> that's, our, that's, our, that's our rate. And the reason for that is, is the debt. And what you'll notice is, is that when we had very low debt levels back in 1947 through really the, the late 80s, the economic growth rate was about 3.2% real. That's after inflation for a very long time. And that was until 2007. And then after the financial crisis, we started growing again. But that growth rate went from 3.2% to 2.3%. Then after the COVID crisis, we're now going to step that rate of growth down again to probably somewhere sub 2%, 1.8, 1.9%. And this is just a function of the increasing of debt over time and the impact that debt has on economic growth because it diverts income and production away from productive sources that create economic growth to debt service, right? So this is why we keep having these slower rates of growth and why we will continue to have slower rates of growth as we continue to increase the debt. Okay, but let's get back to GDP and GDI and, and all this other stuff. So when we start talking about the economy, there's an important relationship you have to understand, which is the function of production versus consumption. So I just told you that 70% of GDP is based on consumption. So that's what you and I spend every day. So right, real, real quick before we get there, if we take a look at financial conditions and the economy, so gross domestic product, if a lot of our economy is debt driven, then we can take a look at financial conditions in terms of lending standards and interest rates and see that every time that financial conditions have been this tight. Now, this the, the red line is lending rates and, and interest rates inverted. So whenever there's been a big decline in that index, on an inverted basis, GDP follows exactly what you would expect. Because if I can't get credit, and I'm a debt-driven society, if I can't get credit to spend money, then consumption has to fall. And so this is, this is where we get into this relationship of GDP versus GDI. So in order to consume, now this is the only lesson Economics 101 that you need to take away from today's speech. In order to consume, I have to produce first, right? I've got to get up in the morning, and I know Gen Z's won't like to hear this, but I've got to go to work from nine to five. I've got to earn a paycheck. I get this little magical deposit of digital currency in my bank account, and then I can go buy stuff, right? I can go into Amazon or I can go out and have an experience, whatever it is, but I got to produce something first in order to consume. Now, once I consume, that generates the revenue for companies from which those corporate revenues generate earnings, as I'm getting an increased level of earnings growth because I'm producing more, now I'm consuming more, so companies are having more demand, they go out and hire more employees to meet that demand. That change in demand also requires me to pay more in wages, et cetera, so that I can continue to hire people in order to produce more product. And then as those people produce more at higher wages, they consume more, so forth and so on. And this is the virtuous cycle of the economy, but production comes first. 
So when I when you start thinking about things in this manner, and then came in and coming back and now talking about the economic deficit and what's going on, if I'm using debt to supplant the production side of the equation, in other words, I'm just giving money or I'm printing money to create activity, that activity has a very short life in nature. So it works temporarily to create this productive movement, right? So we've got this Inflation Reduction Act going on right now. So we're running out building property, plant, and equipment. That's great. We're creating some jobs short term. But when that, you know, building roads and bridges are, are fantastic. But once that job is done, there's no more production. The sugar right? rush is over. Yeah. Right. Right. So, so that's why that continues to fail. What we need to be focusing on is things that produce more productive income. So now this is the, like I said, this and in yeah. order uh, to ongoing get, productive income, sustainable right. productive income. Right. And, and, and this is the important part. That's a full-time job, right? And so when we take a look at a lot of the job growth that we've seen, we've had a lot of part-time job growth. We've got workers that are working three part-time jobs instead of one full-time job. Well, full-time jobs pay more than even multiple part-time jobs. And so to create a sustainable, a sustainable standard of living in the economy, we need more people working full time. Well, we've only got 50% of the working age population working full time right now. And that's actually on the decline over the last couple of, of GDP, uh, uh, employment reports. We haven't even gotten back where we were full time employment wise in 2019 before the economic shutdown. So, you know, we talk about how strong and robust the employment recovery has been. It really hasn't. All we did was put all the people back to work that we laid off full time. We hired them back. You know, when the administration says, oh, we've created 12 million new jobs. No, you didn't. You just put 12 million people back to work that you forced out of work when you shut down the economy. That's not creating economic prosperity. And so when we start, again, moving this forward, now we're talking about incomes and production, right? So the income, the gross domestic income side of the equation is where people are working and they're generating activity. At gross domestic incomes, it has consistently been underperforming the gross domestic product on an inflation-adjusted basis. And importantly, since the really the fourth quarter of last year, and 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 so far two quarters of this year, that gross domestic income has actually been negative versus the gross domestic product. And that can't that is not sustainable long term. So you know, so let's get into some of the charts that really try to show this again. As I said earlier. It's not surprising to see that gross domestic income, since income comes first and then we can go consume stuff, that income and production track very closely. The differential between the incomes and, and the black line is all the other government stuff, right? Look at that divergence that we've had really since the fourth quarter of 2022. That gap is unsustainable. So either we're about to have a massive surge in employment growth and and and, 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 and that will allow incomes to catch up with the economy or gross domestic product, the economy is going to have to slow down and, and we can go back through history. So this chart goes back to 1947. It looks at the gap. So has there ever been a gap before between GDP and GDI? Yes, it has. And if we go back and look at the three quarter growth rate of the gap between GDP and GDI, we are now at the highest level on record. But importantly, when we go back and look at previous periods where you've had such a spike between GDP and GDI, it wasn't GDI catching up with GDP. It was a recession that caught GDP down to GDI, right? 
And so this is just another one of those really, really good indicators. And again, when you look at the probability of recessions, looking at yield curves and all these other type of things, even though we're not in a recession yet, and I'm not saying we are, but all of these indicators suggest that the probability of recession remains very high. And that gap between GDP and GDI is just another one of those indicators that suggest that at some point down the road, the economy is going to have to play catch up. And again, we look at financial conditions. This is based on the spread between the 10-year treasury and the neutral rate. That is also at a level that historically always precedes recession. So again, it's just a function that the economy is driven by a lot of artificial short-term stimulus that ultimately is declining and will evaporate from the system. Yes, it's keeping the economy in a growth trajectory for now, but as that liquidity evaporates from the economy, reality will play catch up and you'll eventually have a recession. But again, as I've said before, probably not till 2024, maybe even early 25, by the time we get all that excess liquidity out of the economy. Okay. Um, so I think very important data series. Um, that's why this section why David Rosenberg, you know, says that he thinks we're in a recession now because the classic definition is back-to-back uh, -back quarters of negative GDP growth. He says, well, I'm doing it by GDI because I think GDI is more realistic here. And you just said, you just showed we've had actually three consecutive yeah. quarters of negative That's GDI right. growth. Um, all right. So, you know, back to the arc that I described earlier of, you know, we get some remaining last hurrah, you know, in the markets, then something breaks. Uh, and that's going to require the central planners to intervene. You're basically saying it's just more data points here that something's going to break, right? You know, this divergence is highly likely going to be history is our guide, going to be GDP falling to catch up to GDI versus the other way around. Yeah, um, and I know, and, 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 and listen, this 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 is our whole thesis on why interest rates are going lower, not higher. Right. And I don't have time to get into it today because we're running short on time here. But if you go to our website, realinvestmentadvice.com, and, and and read our newsletter this weekend, you can subscribe on the front page of the website, and I'll email you the newsletter. Uh, this weekend's newsletter is covering the link between the oil and the economy, but there's a video clip in there that Michael Leibowitz and I did, I did this week explaining why we sold TLT and bought a 20-year a, a treasury bond and all the reasons behind it. We've been talking about this here on the show for the last couple of weeks that we were going to do this transaction. That was our trade this week that we actually did. And so if you want the full kind of ex explainer video, um, it's actually in this weekend's newsletter on our website at realinvestmentadvice.com. Great, folks. You should definitely go watch that. Um, what bond did you buy? It just we bought a, it's actually a, a 20 year duration bond, newly, uh, fairly newly issued. It's, a, it's been aged, so it's about two months old, I think. Um, bought a slight discount to par, which gave us it's uh, gave us about four uh, five eighths yield to maturity. Okay, all right, um, all right. Gosh, just so much to talk about, so little time. Yeah. Um, uh, we'll get to your trades in just a second. Um, uh, one of the points I wanted to bring up here, um, and this is going to reference an article that you wrote about a week ago, um, when. I got some really good life advice when I was graduating Stanford Business School. Um, we had a a dean there, um, super popular, the dean of the business school, a guy named Michael Spence, uh, who then 
later on was recognized uh, by the Nobel Committee. He actually won the Nobel Prize in Economics uh, for research he had done prior to becoming dean there. But just a really nice guy, really smart, obviously. Really cool, too. He was the dean that would, like, you know, leave school early on a Friday to go windsurfing. Um, just a cool dude. But I remember it was right as we were getting ready to graduate and he kind of just, you know, he spoke to us, but basically just said, look, I'm your journey here is kind of over. I'm happy to answer any questions. And one question that, that he was asked, um, was this guy who said, Hey, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to decide between these two offers and the one that I'm really leaning towards, I'm really excited about it, but it's in an industry that I haven't worked in before. So I'm going to have to you know, I'm taking the risk that I'm going to have to learn it and hopefully that goes well, but who knows? And um, uh, my wife and I, we're going to have to move cross country for this job. Um, and my wife and I are now, you know, thinking of starting a family. Um, and so I'm trying to figure out whether I should take that or take this other job that's safer because it's kind of close to what I was doing before I came into business school. And Dean Pence said, um, he said, look, um, I'm generally bias towards encouraging people to take risks he said that's how you actually you know you, you get gains by by taking a risk right taking it taking a smart gamble on something um but he said I, I am i am against taking too many risks at once right if you load yourself up with too many risks um you you definitely begin to multiply the danger of you know one or more of them going awry and then kind of ruining the prospects of everything for you Right. So um, sort of this, you know, risk management uh, lesson. Right. And that really stuck with me. And, and it, it's it's almost kind of like, you know, you know, the Powell doctrine um, in terms of using military force where he's like, generally, you don't want to use it. Right. You want to try not to get in the fight if you don't have to. But if you have to get in the fight, like line up everything to your advantage so that when you come in you just come in hard with with you know everything you got that's you know is highly likely to overwhelm the other guy right just stack everything to your advantage right so um i i think that that is a good approach to taking risk in in investing you might have a difference of opinion i'll let you chime in on it you're kind of nodding as i'm saying this but um you wrote a piece where you said um you know when people talk about average returns of the market um you know, if you strip out the 10 best days uh, <laughs> during those periods, the returns tend necessarily not to be all that great, right? So so there's a couple of days that are just working super extra hard and you can't thump your chest too much um, about how great an investor you are because you've got those 10, 10 big days really pulling you up. Um, and you said, look, as an investor, you may actually have a better return if you focus on trying to avoid the 10 worst days in the market. So let me hand the baton to you here and that I've sort of set the context up here for this, but it seems like actually by being conservative, you can actually get better long-term returns. So, but no, this is, you know, that's absolutely right. And, and, you know, I wrote an article, I have to write this article about once a year because it's almost without fail that as soon as you get into a bullish trend of the market after a correction of any magnitude at all, somebody writes this article about, well, you just need to buy and hold because, you know, if you miss the 10 best days of the market, you vastly underperform the S&P index. Well, what they never tell you is, and again, if you go to our website, we've, we've got this article. It's, it's the meme of the 10 best days. Um, what they fail to tell you is, is that if you miss the 10 worst days, you increase your returns by four and a half times. 
And the reason is that the worst, the best days of the market happen when? During the worst periods of the market. When did we have the best days of the market in 2020? It was during that 35% decline. We'd have these rallies of four and 5% in a day in the market. Then the next day, the market's down, you know, four or 5% the next day. And so these best days of the market that you're not ever supposed to miss, first of all, they're random, but most of the time, they're always in the midst of a bear market, exactly when you don't want to be invested. So that's why if you just focus on missing the worst days, your returns are going to be so much better. So being conservative, and this is why value investing outperforms growth investing over long term, because if you pay for value, you get rewarded over time. And in the short term, buying growth and momentum will make you money short term, but it's going to wind up costing you more than you gain when the correction comes. Value won't do that to you. Um, because money during corrections and during bad periods, money rotates into value. So this is why conservatism always works better. Active management to, to avoid downturns in the market is key to long-term success. Getting back to even is not making money. And you know this is the thing that, that always fascinates me about the mainstream media. Look, they're selling you a product. They just want you to buy an ETF and hold it so they can charge you a fee and that's fine. There's no, that's the business, right? So they tell you these stories about, oh, just buy and hold because you're going to do so much better over time. And, and you really don't. There's some great managers out there, mutual funds that have killed the markets over time. And, and you know, Peter Lynch and so many others, Berkshire Hathaway has killed the absolute return of the market over time. And they're not, they're not passive. They're actively buying and selling companies and managing risk and, and making bets on the market. But importantly, what they focus on is about not losing capital. That's the, it doesn't mean they never lose capital. It doesn't mean that prices don't decline. It just means they work to avoid big declines, big declinations and destruction of capital. Because if I spend four or five years getting back to even, that's fine. But I've also, I've gotten back to even, yes, after five years. So I'm, I'm back to where I was. But that five years of not making my 6% growth puts me 35% behind the market on a compounded basis. So, you know, those are the things that nobody tells you. So you know, this is why it's important. Don't focus on your portfolio from January to September. That means nothing. Look at your portfolio of where you are today. Don't worry about what the market's doing. Look at how your position for returns over the next 10 years, next 15 years, next 20 years, manage that risk. And yes, some years you're going to underperform. Some years you're going to outperform. And the key years that you really want to outperform are when the market declines 20 or 30%. That's the biggest separator between making long-term wealth versus not. All right. And, and this is why I think if you're working with a financial advisor, which I think most people should do, and I'm going to make that claim as I always do at the end of this, this video too, um, but that risk management should be such a key part of the decision-making that you use when choosing an advisor, you know, as Lance alluded to earlier, you know, most advisors out there, one, you know, aren't, don't have the depth of experience of a guy like Lance. And they generally have the mindset of, oh, no, Mark will take care of you in the long run, right? So I'm just going to keep you fully invested all the time because over the arc of your life, if markets will go up, right? And not that that's necessarily untrue, but the point is, is that you can have a much better return and hit your goals a lot sooner if you deploy good risk management. Yes and no to that statement. And let me give you a couple of good examples of what I mean by that. Um, you know, most people, when they start seriously saving for retirement, they're 35-ish, maybe 40-ish, right? And because think about what goes on prior to 35, right? You're getting married, you're having kids, 
sending kids to college, buying a house, there's not a lot of money to save, right? People don't really get serious about saving and investing for their future until they're 35 or 40 years of age, okay? Um, so now let's tack on 20 years to that. So I'm 35, I'm gonna retire at 55, right? So 20 years. I'm 40, I'm gonna retire at 60. I'm 45, I'm gonna retire at 65. So people on, on average save about 20 years, right? So this is why it's so important to understand about your starting point when you start investing. If I started investing in 1960, I lost money for 20 years. So I had less money on an invested basis when I got to 1980 than I did in 1960 when I started. If I started investing in 2000, 20 years later, I barely had any more money than I started with. I'm not anywhere close to ready for retirement. And that's assuming I didn't sell out at the bottom of the market every time. So buy and hold in a theory works great as long as you happen to be starting at a point in time where you had depressed valuations, you have a big blowout in the market, 2008 is an example, you had a big blowout in the market, and now you've got some, you've got kind of the wind at your back, so to speak, for a recovery that allows buy and hold to work. Buy and hold has absolutely worked since 2009. Didn't work worth a damn from, 19, from 1990 through 2000. So it's all about your starting point. If you're gonna do buy and hold, just understand you, it's, it's all about where you start the process. Right, which is sort of like saying it's all about luck because you have no idea. Yeah. <laughs> you have no idea what the next 20 years are going to do, right? Yeah. Um, all right. Well, look, um, we're here at the end of the time again, Lance. A lot of topics I didn't get to. We'll just push them off to next week's video. Um, real quick, though, what trades, if any, did you guys make this week? What I told you, um, the only trade we made this week because it took us all week to put it all together was uh, the bond swap. So swapping swap. TLT for an individual bond. Now, if you're a Simplevisor subscriber, um, we, we in, in Simplevisor, which you know I show you here from time to time on the show from a lot of our research and analysis platform that we have, um, in that model, which is a live account, by the way, it is actually a live, uh, a live traded portfolio that we replicate on the website. Um, we had to swap TLT for EDV. And the reason is, is that we don't have an active data feed for a specific bond that will give us the daily price changes. So, um, and again, you know, if you, when, depending on when you start, you won't be able to buy the same bond that we bought. So it, it makes it very confusing on the website. So on the website, we swap TLT for EDV, but in our client managed portfolios, we actually swap TLT for an actual individual treasury. Okay. Thanks for clarifying for that. If anybody has any questions, I'm sure they can just email your team there at RIA. Um, all right. Well, look, as we wrap up here, um, just want to remind folks uh, that the Wealthy on Fall online conference uh, is coming up next month, Saturday, October 21st. Um, ticket sales have actually been going great so far. So if you are thinking about going and haven't registered yet, highly recommend you do so soon because you want to lock in that early bird price discount of almost 30%. And if you're an alumnus of our previous conferences, check your email inbox. You should have a code from me that'll let you get an additional 15% discount on top of that 30% uh, early bird discount. But those aren't going to last forever. So make sure you both lock in your seat and lock in those discounts uh, by going and registering soon. Um, just a great lineup there. Um, uh, Anyways, I, I won't go through all the names right now because we're short on time. But if you want to find out uh, who's going to be there, what they're going to talk about, go to wealthion.com slash conference has all the information there as well as how to register. 
Um, and then just as I, you know, do every week, and Lance did a great job explaining this multiple times in this discussion, I uh, highly recommend that most people watching this video, uh, because uh, you don't have the expertise, the time, uh, the market uh, experience that a guy like uh, Lance and his team there at RIA have, um, but you also have a real life, right, that you got to deal with, you got to go to work, you got to focus on your family, et cetera. Highly recommend that most people um, approach their wealth building journey by following the guidance of a good professional financial advisor. Uh, obviously, you want them to be good, but you also want them to be steeped in all the macro issues that Lance and I talked about here. And there really aren't that many that do that uh, well, and there are many that don't do it at all. Um, so anyways, uh, if you've got a good advisor who's doing that for you, great, stick with them. But if you don't, or you'd like a second opinion from one who does, maybe even Lance and the team there at RAA, uh, set up a free consultation with one of the financial advisors that Wealthion endorses. To do that, just fill out the short form at Wealthion.com. Only takes you a couple seconds to fill out. These consultations are totally free. There's no commitment to work with these guys. It's just a public service they offer to help people get as prudently positioned as possible in advance of some of this, you know, these fundamentals finally mattering that, that Lance and I have been talking about here. Um, and if you enjoy uh, hearing Lance and I bat around the intellectual football a week after week after week on this channel and want to hear more of it in the future, uh, show your support for that by hitting the like button and then clicking on the red subscribe button below, as well as that little bell icon right next to it. Lance, as usual, you get the last word. Uh, the only thing I say is that if you are interested in, in the bond trade and, and why we did it and kind of the reasoning behind it, there's about a 15 minute video clip that will be in this weekend's newsletter. So if you go to realinvestmentadvice.com, again, shameless plug, but if you want that video clip to really kind of, Mike, Mike Leibowitz and I really kind of dig in depth into all the reasonings behind why we made the swap now, uh, both the economic side of it, as well as the portfolio side of it, uh, that will be in this weekend's newsletter. We'll email it to you for free if you subscribe. If not, you can download it right at the website on Saturday. All right, um, buddy, thanks for another great week. Wish you well. See you next week. Everybody else, thanks so much for watching.